why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. The story was told of a late afternoon on a Saturday with a large European cathedral when there was a knock at the door and the, uh, the sexton was starting to close the church. The sexton, that was the guy that kind of, you know, took care of sort of the custodian in those days of the churches back in those days. And uh, he was getting ready to close the church down in preparation for the weekend services. But the knock on the door, he thought, well, maybe it's somebody, a parishioner who wants to pray. So he thought, well, I'll go let him in just for a few minutes. And as he let the person in the door, it was sort of a, just a very normal, plain looking guy and sort of shabby, shabbily dressed clothing, nothing fancy for sure. And, um, you know, the ordinary man, ordinary clothes had a simple request. He said, you know, I would give anything to be able to see your world-class, world-famous organ that you have in this church. And he said, well, our organ is famous, but man, that's, I don't think we can do that, the sexton said. He said, you know, the organist here is real particular who goes up in the organ loft. And um, it was, it was one of the huge old European organs that was world famous. And the guy just said, no, I, I can't let you do that. And well, he said, be begged. He said, yeah, I've come a long way and I just love to at least see it. Can I at least see it? And the guy felt bad for the, the shabbily dressed guy and thought, well, okay, come on, let's go, but only for a minute. So they went up the stairs into the organ loft and there the man looked at the knobs and the stops and the pedals and the keys and the pipes. And you could tell he, he was just looking with great longing desire to play the organ. So he looked at the sexton and the sexton said, absolutely not. <laughs> he said, oh, if I could just play a few notes on it, it would just be such a, such a, a pleasure. And, and uh, he said, I, please, please, I've come a long ways to see this or organ. And the sexton finally, he said, you know, um, I know the organist here would hate this that I'm letting somebody even touch his organ. But he, he eventually complied and said, okay, you can only play a few notes on the organ. And the man sat down and pushed and pulled a few of the knobs and, um, you know, the, the, uh, the guy started to play his first notes. It's, it looked, it seemed as if he was doing some improv improvisational type piece uh, just kind of making it up as he went, but the sexton couldn't believe his ears. Um, frankly, the organist that was shabbily dressed played better than he'd ever heard anyone ever play an or organ, and he was blown away at the man's skill, and he was so moved. You know, he said, compared to our organist, he thought, you know, it couldn't even compare to this man. His playing was sublime. And uh, the experience was almost transcendent, and so he just kind of, he just kind of sat there and listened in shock and bewilderment. Well, the organ being very huge and loud, well, the people in the courtyard of the church out in the city square could hear the organ playing. And before the half of the song was over, there was already several dozens of people gathering because they'd never heard such playing. Uh, that was kind of the entertainment of the day largely. And so they were blown away and, and the cr crowd gathered. By the end of the song, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in the square. And then just in a jiffy, as soon as the organist finished his song, he got up and ran from the sanctuary and ran out the door. Well, the sexton thought, who, who are you? What's your name? And he ran after him and chased after him, but he couldn't catch up. And the, the crowd saw the man run and, and they, they said, why didn't you tell us, sexton? Why didn't you tell us? And he said, what are you talking about? Why didn't you tell us what? Well, the crowd that, that knew of such things, he said, that man was Mendelssohn 
Felix Mendelssohn, the very best organist in the whole wide world. He was famous, he was a composer, and he was one of the most famous there in the you know, 1840s there in Europe. And Felix Mendelssohn had been there playing the organ. They were not gonna have anybody better play that organ after that day. But the sexton realized he had such a pleasure to be able to hear the greatest organist ever play and how he was just seconds away from missing such a wonderful treat. Uh, you don't wanna miss the song. You don't wanna miss the treat. And truthfully, there's a song that we have before us that is one you don't wanna miss. Um, and at first you might think it's an ugly song, but actually when you see what actually is happening, you'll see that it's a beautiful song. It's called by Bible scholars and what have you. Really, there's several songs, poetry as it, as it is, uh, here in Isaiah, and we've been starting those things. And Wednesday night, we'll go through more of these songs that Isaiah wrote. But this is a song, it's called The Song of the Suffering Savior. And my fear is some people miss this song and they never hear perhaps the most important, the most glorious song ever sung. And it's right here in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're gonna take a look. Now, I gotta remind you of something. As I had you turn to Isaiah 53, one of the things you gotta remember is that the book of Isaiah, um, you know, and, and the whole Bible really, uh, the chapters and verses were added hundreds of years after the Bible was compiled by the early church fathers and where they organized it in the canonicity of scripture, uh, measuring read of how scripture was made. And you have to understand the, the verses and the chapters aren't necessarily inspired in the way that they're broken up. They're just helpful, they are helpful. But sometimes I think we break up chapters when the Lord wanted it to be a full song. One of those places is really important to see is right here in Isaiah chapter 53. For the chapter probably, most scholarship agrees, should have been broken up there in chapter 52. Right there in verse 13, that's the beginning of chapter 53, it really should be. Uh, Brett, or who are you to change the chapter numbers? Nobody. But uh, the guys that added the chapter numbers uh, hundreds of years after the Bible was compiled, they also were just guys, uh, not necessarily inspired. So it doesn't really matter. So, but one thing I'd like to challenge you in your Bible reading is to not just settle for those chapter breaks because sometimes it does a disservice to the text. You know, if you're reading your devotions and you're gonna read, you know, three chapters and you end on chapter 52, you're gonna miss um, really chapter 53, verse 13 is the introduction to this chapter of this great song of a suffering savior. And so we're gonna look at this, we're gonna dig into this, uh, and I wanna go really over the whole chapter, chapter 53 uh, today. So let's check it out. It's Isaiah. We're gonna back up to 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The first thing is the good news. The good news is Jesus, the Messiah. This is a song of the suffering savior, Jesus. He's gonna be extolled, he's gonna be exalted. That's the end of the story. So we're getting the end before we get the, the true story of a suffering savior. He's gonna be extolled. You know, it's, it's something to think about. Uh, how, how do people do today? Are we having people that deal prudently? Um, would the Democrats say the Republicans are dealing prudently? Would the Republicans say the Democrats are dealing prudently? Would Antifa say that 
you know, Trump is dealing prudently or would Trump say Black Lives Matter is dealing prudently? Man, if there's one thing going on in our world today is people are in total disagreement. And there's great consternation, great division, great deception, and it's really troubling. But one of the comforting things about this messianic passage is Jesus is coming. And when he returns, guess what? He's gonna deal prudently with all men. Democrats, Republicans, Antifa, BLM, um, you know, uh, communists, Marxists, socialists, capitalists. Uh, the Lord's gonna deal prudently with all men. That's one of the things that we can look forward to and expect when Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns. That's gonna happen in the millennial kingdom, by the way. So we start off with that glorious truth that he's gonna be glorified, he's gonna be exalted and extolled. Um, very, very cool. But then it goes on to the suffering savior part of what he's about to do. Uh, of course, this was hundreds of years before Jesus would even come, babe, born in Bethlehem. This is a messianic prophecy that Isaiah sees. And, and we're gonna see some detail here that we don't even see in the New Testament narrative of Jesus and his suffering on the cross. We're gonna get even greater detail through the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God. God breathes into Isaiah and Isaiah writes down um, what would happen. And that's what we call prophecy. This is a messianic prophecy. That is a prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus. And it gets pretty detailed, check it out. And, and I'm gonna warn you, uh, it gets a little nasty, kind of brutal, but we must look at it. I think it's important for us to consider our savior, our suffering savior, Jesus Christ. It says there in verse 14, he says, as many were astonished or astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and this form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him for that which hath not been told them they shall see and that which they had not heard, they shall consider. Boy, isn't this something. Verse 14 says that his visage or the way he looked was so marred um, more than any other man. Have you ever wondered, you know, there's, there's some theories about why in the New Testament narrative when Jesus made his post-crucifixion resurrected appearances before the church, um, oftentimes they wouldn't recognize him. Do you remember that? They, they would, like the road to Emmaus there in the end of Luke. The guys said, don't you know that what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus, the Messiah was crucified and Jesus was just standing there going, oh yeah. And, he, and then Jesus started to expound the Old Testament scriptures concerning Jesus. I'm sure Isaiah, you know, 52 and 53 was part of his message there. But Jesus um, was not recognized. I wonder if oftentimes that's because he was scarred beyond recognition. One of the things, if you recall, when Thomas saw Jesus, he said, you can put your finger through the nail holes that were put in my hands. The scars remain of Jesus. And when it says he was beaten his visage beyond any other man. Now I have to say, not to be gross here, but I've been um, in some situations where I've had to rescue people off of car accidents that I couldn't believe how a person can be messed up in visage, the way they look, um, faces, literally scraped off by pavement and asphalt and just a mouth that's breathing. I've seen that and it's, it's a horrifying thing, but um, you know, here it's saying more than any other man, his visage was marred 
He was, um, you know, we're, we're gonna see where he was beaten beyond recognition. No wonder maybe his post-resurrection appearances were not really known. Maybe his scars remained so much that they weren't even really sure who they were looking at. It was external things that he did that started to make them see that it was Jesus. Remember those guys on the road to Maze, they got went to have dinner and then Jesus took the bread and he broke it and blessed it. And they said, that's Jesus. It was a behavior that they saw that was actually Jesus. Um, that's why I think they maybe don't know who he is most of the time. Even Mary in the garden thought, assumed that he was one of the gardeners, um, but she didn't realize it was Jesus, the resurrected savior. But what did Jesus do for you, for me? He was beaten beyond recognition. His visage was so marred more than any other man and his form more than the sons of men. Nobody was beaten more than Christ. So even, you know, um, the passion of the Christ, they did a good attempt at showing you how brutal the cross and the torture was. But even that, you could still recognize him by the end of the torture. Um, according to the Bible, you couldn't even recognize him. Well, and it says in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle nations with what? Well, we know if you're a Bible student, you know what he sprinkled nations with, the blood of Christ. When Jesus' innocent blood was shed, he would sprinkle the whole world with that blood. Anyone who would accept the work of the cross, they could be saved and forgiven of their sins. So his blood sprinkled, not just for the Jews, by the way. He was a Jew, but he died for the sins of the whole world, once for all sin, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, that the kings shall shut their mouths at him. You know, the kings would be like, what do, what do we have to say? Uh, Jesus did this for us. And there are kings that have shut their mouths. Even Pontius Pilate had his mouth kind of shut. I find no fault in this man. And he kind of turned him over to the, you know, to the tormentors, but he said, I, I find no fault. And so this is Jesus, the Messiah. And so this is sort of the introduction, verses 13 through 15, for the song of the suffering savior. And then it goes on, verse one of chapter 53. It says, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Um, the, the, the question here is, who's believing what we're saying here? Who's gonna believe about this coming Messiah who would die for the sins of the whole world? Who's gonna believe this? It's a rhetorical question. And the arm of the Lord is a reference to the salvation, the arm of salvation. That's something we'll see on Wednesday night. Before we get to chapter 53, we'll look at that a little bit more. The arm of the Lord, who is it revealed? He's gonna show his powerful arm of salvation to all of humanity. Did you know that no one will have an excuse? The Bible says they'll be without excuse. Um, and, uh, and every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and is the Messiah. It says in verse two, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness and, he, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus, interestingly enough, looked like a normal man. He didn't look like a ripped surfer from Southern California standing around where, Remember when uh, they, they told Judas, how are we gonna know which one's Jesus? And uh, it, you know, Judas didn't say, well, look for the one who's floating and glowing. That's Jesus. Uh, look for the extremely handsome one, the tallest one. Nope. Um, Judas said, I'm gonna have to identify him. I'll betray him with a kiss. So they, they, he didn't have some you know, look 
that was so different than everybody else. Jesus was God in the flesh, but he didn't look like God in the flesh. He looked like a man. Um, isn't that amazing that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, made himself of no reputation? Um, a lot of times the Jesus movies, we like to put the best looking guy as the guy who plays Jesus. Um, now, I do have theories about what Jesus looked like. I think he looked like a normal guy, but I also think he was maybe uh, somewhat intimidating. I don't think he was sort of the pot-smoking, skinny twig guy that was a hippie coming out of, a, you know, like a, a hippie uh, camp. <laughs> Jesus was probably sort of intimidating. I think he carried himself in a way that people were like, well, don't mess with him. Because remember when he turned the tables in the temple? Nobody challenged him. Jesus went around turning tables and made a whip of small cords and said, take these things hence. And nobody said, hey, what are you doing? Um, I think Jesus might have been a normal guy, but he was also perhaps a guy you kind of wouldn't want to tangle with, I think. Uh, it's possible. I wouldn't die on that battlefield, but I think there's evidence of that. Probably maybe a bigger guy. Um, Brett, you're just saying that because you're a bigger guy. Well, he was falsely accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. That was false. But maybe he was, you know, maybe he was a big guy. Uh, and, and for that reason, people didn't mess with him. But he's just a normal guy. We didn't see any beauty. Nobody desired anything special about the way he looked. Now his behavior, that's what made people realize there's something really special. Remember the woman of the well at Samaria, where she said, how is it that you being a Jew talks to me, a woman of Samaria? And then Jesus started talking with her. And when he talked with her, she said, sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. And then she ultimately realized he was the Messiah that they were looking for. You know, Jesus may have looked like a normal guy, but he didn't carry himself or talk like a normal guy. People heard him and they received him gladly when they heard Jesus. But there would be no outward comeliness uh, that we should desire him. Verse three, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Um, Jesus was despised and rejected. He was despised by the Jews. Crucify him, they yelled out. He was rejected. That, that theme in the Bible that the cornerstone would be rejected of, of men. Jesus, the, the rock of our salvation, would be rejected by men. And it's speaking of that, that they wouldn't follow after him and they rejected him and they didn't esteem him as the Messiah. But verse four, surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus was one who felt not only your, the, the weight of your and my sin upon his shoulders, but even our grief and our sorrow, Jesus felt that. He was the man of many sorrows. Now don't be um, fooled by this. Jesus was acquainted with grief. And remember he weep over Jerusalem as he rode into Jerusalem. But when he wept over Jerusalem, there's other scriptures that say he was anointed with the oil of gladness. He was also one where little children liked to run up to him and sit on his lap and he, he loved the little children and said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Um, so while he was acquainted with grief, a man of many sorrows, he was also anointed with the oil of gladness and he had a joy about him at the same time. This is the perfect savior, Jesus, that we're looking at here. And then it goes on says, um, verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is like Romans, where Romans tells you and me, we're all sinners, we've all fallen short. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, no one is righteous. Everyone's turned his own way. And the idea of this is that the Lord, he says, because you're sheep and you're in need of a savior, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was beaten for our sins. Jesus took the penalty that you deserved, that I deserved for salvation. Jesus did that. Man, how thankful I am for a a wounded savior, a suffering savior, because without that, you and I'd be toast. But he laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all, it says there. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Remember last week I talked about Jesus's willingness to go to the cross. He didn't fight. He didn't push back. He didn't drag his heels as they were dragging him out of the garden. And when they asked him all the questions, he said nothing. And he was silent because he knew what he had to do. And he knew that they weren't gonna be reasonable. He knew that him trying to convince them of anything was a waste of time. And so as a sheep before the, the shearers, you know, uh, Jesus stood there without saying a word. And if you read the narrative, that's what happened. They tried to say, are you Jesus, King of the Jews? You know, and, and Jesus would be quiet there as they accused him and mocked him. And he opened not his mouth. These are things that are fulfillment. Jesus fulfilled these prophecies of the Old Testament. Remember, I told you there are more than 300 specific prophecies that are in the Old Testament that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. And I hope you can see that here. There's tons of them right here in this little passage uh, that he didn't you know, open his mouth in his defense. Sometimes, by the way, I wonder if you and I should be less defensive and maybe not open our mouths more. I know that's, uh, uh, some of us tend to open our mouths and uh, it can get you into trouble, but sometimes it's best just to be silent and let the Lord fight for you. Let the Lord sort everything out. Jesus did that. Verse eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people and was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was sinless. That's one of the major themes of this. He was perfect and yet he was the one beaten, bruised, wounded for our sins. And he was buried in the, the tombs of wicked people along with rich people. Remember the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea would be the tomb that they would lay Jesus in. And he was a rich man. So Jesus's tomb was probably in an area where there were rich people's tombs as well as wicked people. And sometimes rich people are wicked people. Uh, but all that to say, Jesus was wounded and suffered on our behalf in that way. And he was buried in a, in a tomb. But you might say, uh, great, Brett, that's so depressing. But check this out. This is where it gets even more crazy. Verse 10. Yet it pleased Jehovah, that word Lord, there's Jehovah. Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Um, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is it that the Lord could say? How could the Lord say it pleased me to bruise my son, to allow my son to suffer? There's some doctrine here that's 
a little bit tricky. But first of all, the first thing you have to remember is Jesus did it willingly. And God, it says it pleased him to have his son, Jesus, suffer. Now, there's a couple things he knew, God knew, that if Jesus didn't do that, then the world would end up going to hell for all eternity. So it pleased God to allow his son to suffer, by the way, knowing that he would resurrect from the dead. But Christ would raise up from the dead. God knew this. And, and so he saved the whole world from eternal death and hell through Jesus. That's why it pleased him to suffer. Now, you say, Brett, that's morbid for a father to be pleased by the bruising and the beating of his son. But then there's the doctrine of the Trinity that you also have to weigh out, that God became a man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter one tells us those things. So Jesus was God. So it pleased God to send himself to be brutalized on behalf of the sins of the world. Um, by the way, if Jesus isn't God, which he is, but like the Jehovah's Witness or Mormons who don't believe Jesus is God, one and the same, then it becomes a little sinister that God would allow his son to be horribly suffering um, and if he just sent his son for that. But we know that Jesus is God. That's um, essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And so we have here Jesus being crucified, suffering, and it pleased the Father. Why? Because all the world would be saved from their sins by Jesus dying on the cross. Verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The word justify there is the New Testament doctrine, justification. When Jesus died on the cross, he uh, justified us. And the word justification is just as if you'd never sinned. He paid the penalty and he says, you are free. You are no longer under the law of sin and death because of justification. What a great doctrine. We've done whole teachings on the doctrine of justification. I hope you can check that out. If you don't know about that, you can look it up on our website. But they'll be justified, verse 11. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. What's this all about? Um, this language would have been common in the day of Isaiah. When it says here, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Um, what this is telling us is there was a spiritual battle. And this is battle language. After a king would go and destroy his enemy and, and when he was victorious, he would come and divide the spoil among the people. And Jesus won a big victory against Satan himself, the armies of Satan, when Jesus died on the cross and raised up from the grave. The victory was won. Death has been defeated. You and I have salvation. Nothing we earned, nothing we deserved, but we just get the spoil of salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Man, I love that. You see, this is why some people say this chapter is the pinnacle of the Old Testament because it's pointing to so perfectly, so exactingly to the suffering savior, the song of the suffering savior. But I wanna show you the last phrase, and I think this is important too. Because the enemy, he's called the accuser of the brethren day and night. He wants to accuse you all the time. And uh, when he accuses you, he reminds you of your sin. Well, you're a total loser. You think you're a Christian? You think Jesus died for you? How, how do you know that? Because you're a real loser. 
And the Bible says he accuses you and me and us day and night. But it says here that in the very last phrase, and he made his inner intercession for the transgressors. That's one of the things that Jesus is doing right now. It's, it's a word that you might not see here, but it's, it's what it means. And he's our defense attorney. Because Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty, we are free from our sins and from death. You see, this is important because it's like the old story of the kid who was um, rabble rousing and he was taking his car and riding around town and running over garbage cans and doing all kinds of mayhem. And the police took him and arrested him. And the kid was bummed and he was in jail and they took him up to the court where he would be tried for maliciousness and um, you know, disturbing the peace and all this stuff. And when the guy brought, brought in, he looked a little nervous, uh, but then the judge appeared and then the young man had a big smile of confidence come across his face. Why? It just so happened that the guy's dad was the judge. <laughs> he, his, his father was the judge. And the guy thought, oh, this is great. My dad's the judge. I'm gonna get off scot-free. Well, the judge heard the story, smashed the gavel and said, you owe $10,000 or five years in prison or in jail. What? Dad, come on, I'm your son. And the judge said, nope, final decision. Slammed the gavel down. And the boy was frustrated. He was trying to wiggle out of the arms of the you know, bailiff and everything. But then the judge did something that was really interesting. He stood up from his bench, stripped himself of his judge robe, and then walked down around to the front to where the city recorder was, and he wrote out a check for $10,000 and saved his son from certain doom. Son couldn't afford $10,000, he was gonna go to jail. But the father stepped in and took the penalty himself and paid the price. Clumsy example. But in the courtroom of heaven, Satan is the, you know, the, the plaintiff attorney, but Jesus is your attorney. Do you, do you understand what good news that is, that Jesus is your attorney, your defense attorney? Let me share with you a couple passages about this. Of course, Romans chapter eight, listen to this. In Romans eight, verse 33 and 34 it says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, justifieth, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. So here's God looking at us and Satan accusing us, and we look as guilty as sin, pardon the pun, but we are. And Jesus is our defense attorney, and all he has to do is show his hands and his feet and his wounds from Isaiah chapter 53. He showed us his wounds and just there, the father in heaven would say, case dismissed, you have been justified. That's what Romans eight is telling us. Also Hebrews chapter seven tells us the same theme. Hebrews 7.25 says this, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ rose from the dead, but what is he doing? He ever lives to make intercession for you. So when Satan accuses you, do you realize you have an ever living intercessor, 
an attorney that doesn't charge by the hour, who's defending you in the courtroom of heaven. That's why you as a Christian, you are justified, just as if you'd never sinned, because Christ is our attorney. And I love that Jesus is gonna fight the fight for us. Boy, this gives me great hope and confidence, not because I'm a good person or because I've been better than anybody else or deserve anything better than anybody else. I'm just so thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that I like to remind our Christian family is, um, you know, our messages here at Athey are always really about Jesus. You say, why are you always talking about Jesus? Because that's what the whole book's about. And I don't believe it's about you being smarter, better, living your best life, uh, you eating healthy and all this stuff. You can do that stuff if you want to, but it's amazing how it's about taking back this country and about this and that and the other. A lot of, a lot of people are getting derailed. It's, it's what Paul said, I have determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not about us ushering in the kingdom of God. Nope, God's gonna bring his kingdom whenever he wants to. He's sovereign, he's gonna do it. You and I have been saved by the grace of God and that's what we should make our message. That's what you should be telling people because all the other stuff is far, far second to the gospel that we've just seen today. And sad to say, as I mentioned the song of the organist at the beginning of this teaching, you know, Felix Mendelssohn and the guy almost missed the most glorious tune of all. Well, I feel like there's a lot of people who in the name of Christianity are missing the song of the suffering savior. This is what it's all about. Jesus, who's God, who came and suffered, was beaten and bruised on our behalf, died on the cross for our sins, rose up from the grave for all of us who like sheep have gone astray. And he rose up and he justified us. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's the gospel. Man, may the Lord cause you to hear the song of the suffering savior and may it change your life forever, even as it has for me. Lord, how we pray on this service, Lord, that you would just cause each one listening to really be appreciative of our suffering savior. Lord, help us not to be callous. So many of us have heard the message of the suffering savior over and over again. And it can almost become where we're so familiar with it that we lose the gravity of it. Lord, I pray that you'd give us that wonderful splash of cold water, realizing the glorious work of the cross. And so Lord, bless these, your people with that truth, the suffering savior, the song of the suffering savior. This we pray in Jesus name, amen, amen. And God bless you. And we'll see you next time.